Well, good morning. It's good to be back. Um, we just got back from vacation. Uh, we went to Emerald Isle, and uh, on our way back, um, we, uh, we stopped at this uh, hotel, um, just well, a motel, and uh, I tr- did that to hopefully get a little sleep so I'd be a little rested to be here. Um, but when you're traveling with three young ones, they actually think uh, the hotel was pretty cool. Um, you would not have thought the hotel was very cool, right, if you would have stayed there. Um, my wife and I were, were, well, I'm cheap, my wife isn't. Um, so, you know, I picked the least expensive hotel that we could find, and our kids think it's really cool. Um, but it was only like one bed, and we, I don't sleep with my kids. I don't know, you might, but I don't, so I'm not used to it. And it was one bed. We got in about one in the morning. And my kids, they're not from Alabama, but my wife is, and for whatever reason, they picked up um, the idea of, like, they say hotel. They're really, like, so they were really excited to be at the hotel when we get there, and I try to get in bed, and they're jumping up and down at one in the morning, and I told them I was wanting to strangle them all. Um, I think I threw my daughter out of my bed, out of the bed once. Um, but I'm, I'm glad to be back with you. Uh, if I don't seem well-rested, it's because I'm not, but I will be after today. So we're back. Um, I'm, I'm glad to be back at our church. When you notice, uh, when we walk into our church, there's like these big words uh, that you see out there in the lobby. And um, being gone, it makes you think about your church and where you're going and who you are and all those sorts of things and who you miss and what you want to be about. And, and today I want to take a moment as we look at James together, the book of James um, and what we've been studying. And I want to kind of just kind of recalibrate um, us and remind us of who we are. Uh, a little bit as we open the Word together. Um, We hope to be a church that's anchored in God's Word, and we hope to be people that are anchored in God's Word. As we open James, um, one of the things that you'll understand about the book of James, or you should understand about the book of James, is it was written to Christians. Um, It really wasn't written to unbelievers, but it was written to Christians, And, and James is calling Christians to faithfulness and to be on mission And if uh, you have been around our church for a little while, you'll know um, that our mission kind of, it revolves around these four words, or these not four words, but phrases here that we want to happen in everybody's life in the midst of our church. So our mission as a church, the way we we state it, is we want everybody to know God, to experience freedom, to live with purpose, and be set in motion to carry out the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. And as we look at the book of James, uh, the big idea is that we want everybody to be in a personal relationship with God. We want everybody to know God. We said that kind of, if, if I were to um, summarize James, I would summarize it with two verses. Um, James one twenty two and James one twenty seven. And you, I'll go ahead and throw it on the screen there, Don. And I want to start with uh, verse 27. And it's after the, uh, uh, the three dots there. And it says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this. In other words, like to really know God. James is saying if you really believe, or if you really know God, if you're really in a relationship with God, it's this. And then he goes, into more. And we want everybody to know God. And how do we know God, right? We, we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and operate through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we receive Jesus as Lord. That means we follow Lord. We have a real relationship um, with our Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing we want for everybody, and, and by the way, like when we talk about knowing God, one of the things that we, we um, uh, highlight um, and your knowledge of God is actually being here on Sunday mornings because what we will do, we will open the Bible together and I'm going to teach from the Word of God because that's how we know who God is and that's how we know how we're becoming more like God or if we're not. Um, the second thing we want for everybody is to experience freedom. Now that's an interesting phrase. If you know anything kind of about the Bible, um, what you'll know is that God delivered people from slavery. 
is, is that God, when he saved God's people, when he saved his people, the Israelites, who did he free them from? He freed them from the Egyptians, and the Egyptians had them enslaved and in bondage, and they were building things for the Egyptians. They were stuck in that. Well, what we believe as believers is that we too are enslaved to sin until we come to know God. And we are stuck in our, our, our sin, and what we want people to do, that we want people to experience freedom after they come to know God. Well, here's what God did after he led them out of Egypt, after he got, got, they were no longer slaves in Egypt, and they're walking out of Egypt, and God spends time with them in the desert, and it's a long time, like they spend a long time before they get to the promised land. Why? What is he doing? He's, he's trying to not only get the people out of Egypt to be in a relationship with them, but he's trying to get the Egypt out of the people. In other words, he's trying to get these people to live separate from the world in which they were in. Now think about James here. Now when James says that pure and undefiled religion is this, he says this, he says it's, it's to remain unstained from the world. And so what James is saying is that you have to separate yourself. He's not saying remove yourself from being out in the world. Like, we can't do that, right? We, we are part of the culture in which we're in. Like, you, if you have a job, right, you can't just stop going to work. Like, your family needs to eat. Um, but what he is saying is, is that you can't be stained by that. Like, you, you have to live different lives than the rest of the people do. And, and so we want people to experience freedom from the bondages that you are in that's not just happens to be out there in the environment, but that actually is in your own heart. And one of the ways that we hope that you will do that is that you will join a group of people. If, if you notice, right, God didn't just deliver one person from Egypt. God delivered people from Egypt. They walked out together. And so this is why we encourage you to be in groups. Uh, we want you to be in groups so that God can use the people around you to give you a different culture, a different community to be a part of so that you can follow him. This, the third thing that we hope that everybody will do is live with purpose, right? Well, I, I believe that you have a God-given purpose no matter who you are. Um, in James, he puts it like this. He says it's to, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, right? You, yours, you're, you're, you too are supposed to care about orphans and widows, right, in their affliction. Uh, but your purpose may be a little different. God has wired you in different ways, and God has a plan for you. And the uh, fourth and final thing is this, is to be set in motion to carry out the great commission and great commandment. Uh, James 1.22, he says this. He says, uh, be doers of the word, not hearers only deceiving yourselves. And so what does he mean by that? He means to be set in motion, be doers of the word, right? God has something for you, and we are supposed to be active in our faith. And this leads me uh, to James chapter 2, uh, we're going to begin at verse 14. If you've been with us over the past couple weeks, what you've discovered um, is that we are going through the book of James together, and we're pretty much um, reading every word of James over the next several weeks, and we're just allowing uh, God to speak to us out of this book as we try to understand it together, um, because that's who we want to be. We want to be God's people that are centered around and under his word. James says this to a group of Christians. He says, what good is it, my brothers, in verse 14, if someone says he has faith, if he knows God, in other words, but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What James is saying here is that faith that is not set in motion is dead. Faith that is not set in motion is dead. Maybe I, I should put it like this, right? 
um, conversion, or excuse me, commitment, right? Commitment. Commitment to God, or commitment to do good and godly work always follows conversion. Commitment to do good and godly work always follows conversion. In other words, you can't come to know God and not be set in motion. They always go together here. Commitment to do good and godly work always follows conversion. What James does here, he kind of gives kind of a hypothetical. Here, he's he's arguing with people. He's not really arguing with anybody, but he's sending them a letter. Um, And what you'll discover is what James is doing through this text I'm reading you today. He's kind of bringing up um, different situations or even arguments that people might throw back at him. And he says, imagine that somebody in your church, he calls him a brother, or a brother or sister here. And so what he's talking about here, he's saying that somebody in your church comes to you and they don't have the nice, they don't have clothes to keep them warm and they don't have food to keep them fed. If you don't give them clothes to keep them warm and food to keep them fed, he says, you're not really living out your faith, right? In fact, he says, your, your faith is dead. If a brother and sister is in need, Right? And you don't help kind of meet that need. He says you're not actually being a Christian. You're not actually being the church. And so, so you need to be aware of that. Uh, one of the things that I, I love about our church is, right, if you don't have clothes and you don't have food, I mean, we've got you. We have, we have, two, we have two different ministries that feed people in our church, and we have another ministry, too, that clothes people. Um, and, and so just so you know, right, if you're hungry or if you're going hungry, you don't have to if you're a part of this family and if you're a part of this body of believers. Just come to me. We'll help you out. If you don't have clothes, come to me. We'll help you out. I've seen our church do this over and over again. We will do this. Commitment always follows conversion. One of the ways that we say this um, when it comes to making sure that people are clothed and fed and have their basic needs is this. And you might want to write this down, right? If 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 you see a need... If you see a need, fill it. Right? If you see a need, fill it. If you see a hurt, heal it. If you see a need, feel it. If you see a need or hurt, heal it. Commitment to do good and godly work always follows conversion. Uh, growing up, um, many of you know this, but I just want to share my story because I was talking to somebody um, last week who called me and needed some advice, and they didn't they didn't know this. But growing up, I wasn't raised in the church. Right? We didn't. Uh, go to church except for maybe Easter or uh, maybe on uh, Christmas uh, occasionally and stuff. And it wasn't that we didn't like church. It wasn't that I wasn't raised by a good and loving family. I was raised uh, by parents who deeply loved me even when they weren't Christians and even when they weren't going to church. They took care of me. They fed me. They supported me. They never missed anything that I did. Um, They were by all means great parents and, and always have been. Uh, but one of the things that they didn't take responsibility for at a young age was my faith. Um, and so I was invited to church as a young person to the youth group, to the local youth group, and started to attend the church at that point in time. Attended for about a year, then I went to a conference. This Doug, Pastor Doug, uh, took our students to this conference this past year called the International Youth Convention of the Church of God. And after spending a year with a group of students um, my age and spending t- some time with the student minister, um, the preacher at this conference preached, and he invited people to come and follow Jesus Christ. And I remember he asked um, us in this, the auditorium if we would like to receive Christ, pray this prayer with, a, with him. And then he said, if you prayed that prayer with me and you've received Christ for the first time, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand up. And I remember like, thinking, like, 
okay, I prayed the prayer, but I'm not going to stand up. Um, you know, what if nobody else does? And I started to see people, like, start to get out of their seat and stand up. And then he asked us to do something else. He said, go ahead. If you stood up, come forward, and there's a prayer room, go back to this prayer room. Youth ministers, would you go back to the prayer room with the students? And so a group of students and I, we went back to the prayer room, and our youth minister sat down there, and he asked us about our commitment to Christ. Um, and, and, and I'll never forget this. He, he wanted to make sure that our commitment was sincere, and so he asked us to receive Jesus as Lord, but then he asked one other thing. He asked, so what else is God telling you? And I thought that was, I, I thought that was really, as I look back at it now, I, I felt like it was really odd, because I don't feel like we, we ask people that question a lot after their conversion. We're just so excited that somebody has decided to come to know Christ and may be willing to be baptized. Um, we don't kind of follow up with this question, well, what is God calling you to now? He's called you to himself. Is God doing anything else in you? Is he stirring anything else in you? And my youth pastor, he asked me that question. He said, well, what else is God telling you? And I knew it right away. Like, God was calling me to my family. My family, were, they were not following Jesus. They did, they did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so there, as, as a teenager, I, I told my youth minister that my goal Right? was my mission in life at that point in time was going to be sh- to, to get my parents to church so that they could hear uh, about Jesus and come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's what I committed my, my life to at that point in time. Within two years, they were all baptized. Right? Uh, commitment uh, to do good and godly things or, or, or com- always follows conversion. This is, this is the way that our faith works, right? You're not just saved from, right, death, hell, the wrath of God, or any of that, but rather you're, you're saved too, and you're saved to life. Now, James says that, that faith without works is dead, and so when we are converted, right, what God is doing is he's bringing to life God in us to carry out the works of God through us. I'm going to ask you this question. Right, right now. I just kind of just going to ask kind of a series of questions as we read this text together for you to ponder. And here's one. What are you committed to right now that is proof that your faith is not dead? Right. Uh, maybe I'll put it this way. What are you committed to right now that's proof that your faith is alive? What is God doing in your life? What is he calling you to? Verses uh, 18 here. You're following along. James continues to kind of argue with just the, the straw man that will be there in the church. He says, but somebody will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And so right now, James is saying that some of you are going to say, like, I, I don't need to do anything after I come to Christ. Like, I have faith in Jesus Christ. He, he's just, he's going to do it all. I don't need to do anything, um, but my faith is strong. You might need to serve. You might need to work. You might need to do these things for Christ, but, but not me. I, I'm just going to kind of merely believe, right? You, my gift is faith. Your gift is works, and what James is saying here is they're not two diff- different gifts, but rather faith always leads to works, and so what this may look like in, in our life um, is that you want information without transformation, you want to come to church and you want Pastor Josh or whoever to give you a bunch of information, right, so that you can hear, um, maybe you find it interesting, 
maybe, I, 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 I don't know, it kind of encourages you um, to hear the Word of God in which it should, but what never really happens is your heart is never changed by it. Like, you're never transformed by the information that is given here from the pulpit or from the Word. Uh, maybe it sounds like this, Josh, I, I want to go deeper, right? I, I want you to teach me more and more about what the Bible says or um, how, it, how it relates to culture or some type of psychological tidbit that goes with this, the scriptures. Or I, I just want to, I, I want to lead, I want you to go, I want you to go deeper. Just please go deeper. But, but you're never willing to, when I just give something really simple to you, just to walk away and obey it. A lot of us want to know more and do very little. Uh, for most of us, um, we know a lot more, really, when it comes to the Scriptures and when it comes to following God than what we're actually willing to do. And, and this is what James is getting at, is that many of us have a lot of knowledge, um, but we're, we're, we're very apprehensive about carrying out the commands to God to obeying God. John Calvin put it like this. He said, obedience is the true mother of knowledge. Right? Obedience is the true mother of knowledge. Because most of us know more than we're willing to do. When I thought about a family that actually I feel like carries this out really well, and there's a lot of families in our church that do this well, when it comes to balancing knowledge and obedience, um, I thought about the Beringer family. Um, Don and Don Jr. are back there in, in the computer, and um, they're probably embarrassed that I'd even tell you, talk to you about this. Um, uh, but Don and his wife Judy, the senior, uh, they uh, they've been in this church for a really long time. I can't imagine probably a few people that would probably get a better grade on their Bible exam than probably those two if we were to give Bible exams out. One of the things that they have taken responsibility for in our church is to to, to, to visit shut-ins. Um, there's rarely a Sunday or a week that goes by, I feel like, where they're, they're not visiting somebody and checking in on somebody um, or calling somebody to see how they're doing. Um, well, they have passed down uh, their faithfulness then to their son, Don Jr. Don Jr., um, he runs the screens back here, and he, he's part of the elder board, and he does a lot for, for our church. Kelly, his wife, is back with our children right now. She helps run the children's department. It's an incredible how much work she is willing to put in. And then you have their children. You have Ryan um, and Hannah. And um, I'm like afraid to teach the Bible in front of Ryan because Ryan knows probably more than I do. Um, some of you have taught Ryan. You know this, right? Um, some of you have been corrected by Ryan. Um, and Ryan's a sixth grader. But one of the things that I, I love about Ryan is that he gets to church early um, because he makes sure the computers are ready. Now that he's out, he just transferred, just transferred uh, out of the children's department, but he, he gets to church early as a sixth grader to make sure all the computers are set up and ready to go um, for children's church. And so what you see in this family is a balance of, of information and transformation, a, a balance of knowing and doing, right? And we have a number of families in our church and people in our church who are just like this. This is the great thing about our church. Um, but those are examples to follow, right? Those, those are saints to be thankful for. Um, and, and those are the types of people that we want to become. Um, and so uh, he continues here, James continues here, he says, you believe that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart, apart from works is useless? Now, what he says here when he says that God is one, what he, what he says he says, you believe that God is one, and he says, good job, you're orthodox. 
In other words, like you have right, the right belief. And what he then goes on to say, he says, even the demons believe that. In other words, he says that even demons have, have the right belief about who Jesus is and who God is. Like, you could give demons a test, and they could pass it. Like, they could check off, they could fill in all the fill in the blanks, they could put, they could get A right, B right, true and false, right? They could get all of that right. right? Uh, but since they're not following Christ, they still get it wrong. Uh, so, right, if you're a theology person, right, you can't have orthodoxy and not have orthopraxy. You can't really know God and not be set in motion to follow God, in other words. Like, knowledge and obedience always go together, because here he, says, he actually says this, and he's, he's talking to the church here, and he says, the demons actually have a leg up on many of us. Because the demons do something. They shudder. Like, they, they respond. When they come into contact with God, and when they understand who he is, they respond, and what James is trying to waken the church up and, and to those who are following Christ is he says, if you don't respond, when you come to, to, to saving knowledge and when you really understand who God is, like he says, there's something wrong. He says, you, you actually don't know as much as you think you know, and you're actually worse off than demons. He says that faith has to lead to some type of response, and for James, faith has to lead to works here. If you don't, you're void of real true faith if you don't have works. So here's another question for you. Right now, just think about what would you do right now? Not if you had more knowledge about God and what God would do. What would you do right now, not if you had more knowledge about God, but if you had more faith in God? What would you do right now, not if you had more knowledge, more information, but if you had more faith? What would you start doing? What would you stop doing? What big and crazy thing would you do for God? Without all the answers, without knowing exactly how it would turn out, without knowing what you might lose, what you might have to give up, or what you might gain, what would you do right now? Not with more information, but if you had more faith. Then he gives examples. He encourages people to think about these examples. And in verse 21, he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac up on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is not justified by works and not by faith. See, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when we received the messengers sent them, <coughs> sent them out by the other way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So it gives us two examples. The first is Abraham. The first is Abraham. Now, if you know anything about Abraham's story, in, in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is, is called out by God. And basically the call goes something like this in Genesis 1, uh, or 12, 1 through 3. It says, Abraham, go from your, your kindred and your homeland. In other words, uh, Abraham, leave your family, 
leave all the land that you own, leave all the wealth that you have, and, and go to a country far off. And God then says, here's what I'm going to promise. I'm going to promise that I'm going to multiply your descendants. I'm going to make your name great, and through you all the nations will be blessed. Now, if you got a message from God, and he just promised you that he's, he's going to give you descendants, and he's going to make your name great, and the only thing you have to do is leave your family and all your wealth Would you do that? That, That's pretty much all the information he was given. Go. Uh, Abraham Abraham was given very little no, like knowledge, how you're going to do it, and God just said go. And what we know about Abraham is that Abraham leaves. He hears this call from God, he hears the words of God, and he just leaves. He just goes. And Abraham is known, right, as the father of our faith. James is writing to mostly Jewish Christians here, and he says, your father. Now, to to the Jews there he's writing to who became Christians, um, this was very significant to them because all of them came from Abraham. They all descended from Abraham. They all have one father, Abraham, and Abraham was extremely um, respected. He is the father not only of their nation, but of their faith. In the same way, Abraham is our father in this way, that he is the father of faith. He leaves just on the call of God and exhibits insane faith by leaving everything that he had, all of his wealth, all of his family, just to go to the land that God had called him to. Not only this, the God promised Abraham descendants. Now there's a problem here when God called Abraham all these descendants. Abraham had not had any children, and Abraham was getting older at this point in time, and his wife was getting older. And ladies, you know that the older you get, the harder it is to have children just because they didn't have doctors back then or the doctors didn't have the knowledge that we do now doesn't mean that they weren't smart enough to understand that when you get older, it's very difficult to have children. And so they go believing that God is going to give them children uh, and they have no idea how. And so they go and they spend a number of years uh, trying to figure out how God is going to answer this call and then finally God gives them a child of their own, Abraham and Sarah, and they name him Isaac. Why do they name him Isaac? Well, what does Isaac mean? Isaac means laughter. They, Abraham names this child laughter because they were, they were, the Bible says they were about 99 years old because they were so old when they had this child that it's hilarious that they could even have a child at this age because they had it at, at, at a hilariously old age here. Then what does God call Abraham to do with Isaac? Well, let's look. Genesis 22, 1 and 3. So they have Isaac, Abraham, and Sarah. They're related because they believe that this is the person whom God had promised them. And then God is going to do something um, very incredible here um, and really hard to believe. This is after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, remember that God will test our faith. We actually started out this series being reminded that God will test our faith. And he says, Abraham, he said, here I am. This is how Abraham responded. And then God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took his two young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he rose and went to the place in which God had told him. So do you get what God just asked him to do? 
God gave him his firstborn and his only son with him and Sarah. This was the son of the promise, and God has asked him now to take his son up onto the mountain and sacrifice his son so that he would no longer have a son. Here. Now, how would you respond to this if God asked you to do that? Now, you don't have to worry about God asking you to sacrifice your son because you're never going to have to do that, right? Uh, God distinguishes after this moment, right? God's people have never sacrificed their children, and to, uh, this is one of the things that God's people were told to never do, although everybody around the nation of Israel were sacrificing children. God made it clear that we don't do that. I'll answer to you in a second why Abraham was asked to do that, but just put this aside. How would you react? We know here that Abraham had about three days to think about this. Um, in verse 4, it says they went about three days before Abraham decided to take him up on the mountain and was ready to go up on the mountain. You imagine what Abraham must have been going through. God, are you really calling me to do this to my one and only son, the son of the promise? But one of the things that we have to be sure of here is that Abraham had learned to trust God through his years. Abraham's faith was so great that he believed that um, if God was able to give him at a son at a, hilar a hilariously old age that God could raise this son from the dead. We don't really know, but what we do know here is that Abraham seems ready to give everything up to follow God and to be faithful to God. And this is the lesson that we learn from Abraham. Be, be careful. Don't let your modern sensibilities get in the way of what God is teaching us here. Abraham is, is our example because he's willing to give everything that is important to him up to be faithful to God and to obey God. And, and the question that James is asking us, or I believe that God has for us as we think about this, is this, is what are you unwilling to give up as you follow God? Think about that. What's the one thing that you're unwilling to give up to follow God? What haven't you given to him? Is it your children? I'm not saying to sacrifice your children on the altar, but right, are, are you raising your children in a godly way? Is it your job? Do you, do you refuse to kind of give up being influenced by those around you instead of starting to influence those around you? What is it? Is it a substance? Is it wealth? What is it? Here's, here's the thing, whatever that is, right, when you read this text, what God is asking us to do, he's asking us to give him that very thing right now. Isaac's ready, or Abraham's ready to do it. Verse uh, 10 here. Abraham has taken Isaac up onto the mountain, and it says, Then Abraham reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. This is what God says. He says, Do not lay a hand on the boy or do any harm to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your only son from me. Continuing in verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, and behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham's ready to do it. God stops him. And he says, Abraham, I see that you've 
passed the test. You're ready to give up everything to follow me. And here's what we know about this story. Not only does this story teach us something about obedience here but it teach, and, and a faithfulness to God, but rather it teaches us about the faithfulness of God. Right? We, aren't, we aren't blindly, right? We aren't blindly faithful to God. We know more about God than Abraham did. Do you realize that? You have much more knowledge than Abraham does. Abraham had no idea who Jesus Christ was. He had no idea about the faithfulness of God. The story of Abraham and Isaac isn't just about Abraham being faithful to God. It's about, it's about God's faithfulness to us. Right? If you read through the story, what you discover is that God, over and over here, he's, he's calling Abraham to do what? To take the wood, put it on his only son and to sacrifice his only son on this piece of wood and then a ram shows up that's going to replace his son on that wood now i don't know about you but that sounds an awful lot like god offering his only son on the cross right whom he loved and which he talks about abraham (laughs) abraham take the only son whom you love Sound a little bit like John 3, 16? Yeah. And what this teaches us here is not that we are very faithful to God at all times, but that God is always faithful to us. And through God's faithful to, faithfulness to us, he's calling us to be faithful to him. He promises us that neither death nor life can harm us here because Jesus Christ has died for us and has risen again and promises us new life. And all he does is ask us to walk in obedience and to trust him here. And Abraham's the example of that. And we're supposed to think about Abraham. We're supposed to contemplate the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of Christ. And then he gives another example. Now, Abraham's nice, right? Because Abraham just, although if you read his story, right, he does stuff that's, that, that we wouldn't want to do, right? And he has laps of faithfulness. But, but then, but he's like the father, he's stately. But then, James, he talks about another person. Who was it? It was Rahab, right? So who's Rahab? Anybody know? The text says Rahab is a what? A prostitute. So you have a man. He was wealthy to begin with, um, probably had a good family, had a lot of cattle. Um, He is known as kind of the father of a nation, uh, very upright. And then James says, oh, uh, you should also think of Rahab, the prostitute, because she was faithful to God, too. Well, how is Rahab faithful to God? Well, when God's people were going into Jericho, they sent two spies in, and the two spies ended up in a brothel, um, and they needed somewhere to hide, and Rahab, who was kind of the, seemed to be probably the mother of the house, hid these men, and she told the people looking for them that they had already gone outside of the gates, and then when it was safe, she told these men, she said, hey, you need to go this way and get out of here, but if you would... Please spare me um, and my family when you come through and you take over Jericho. And the men promised they would. Now Rahab risked her life too to do this. If they would have found these men in her home and she would have lied about it, which she pretty much did, to protect these men so God's people could have moved in, she would have lost her life. She would have lost everything. They would have killed her. And so why did she do this? Well, Joshua tells us why she did it. Chapter 2, verse 11. It says, 
this. She says, She believed that the Lord your God, He is the God of heavens and above and the earth beneath. She believed that God was God and that He would protect her and that He had promised this land to the people. And she placed her faith in Him. Now, something we learned about Rahab and something you need to know about Rahab is Rahab knew <laughs> that her profession would not be welcome in to God's people to be a part of their nation. She knew the way that God's people viewed adultery. The Ten Commandments had already been given at this point in time. Uh, she had heard about God's people, and she was willing to risk her life and to give up everything to follow God. Another thing that we know is that God's people welcomed her her in after they captured Jericho. They didn't kill her, and she became a part of God's people. We know this because she became um, an ancestor, or excuse me, David became one of her ancestors, and so did Jesus himself. Now, why is this important? No matter your past, it's never too late to start putting your faith in Jesus Christ. No matter your insecurities or what you're currently in right now, It's never too late to start obeying Christ. So here's just kind of my final question for you before I get ready to conclude is this. Is what insecurities are keeping you from doing something for God? What insecurities or what in your past is keeping you from doing something big for God? God will forgive all of those. What, are, what insecurities are, or maybe what in your past is keeping you from becoming a member of this church? From being part of, becoming part of God's family? God is bigger than all of that. He's willing to forgive you for all of that, and He's just calling you to simple faith and obedience. We, uh, we have a way um, that kind of helps people, no matter where you're at, uh, to, to walk. Um, and obedience and to walk with purpose and we we say we want everybody to live with purpose right that's really easy to say it can be kind of hard to do and so this is one of the reasons we do next steps this is one of the reasons we encourage you to take our next steps classes in it right one of the step two um, I do something with you where I have you take a, like a personalities test and a, a spiritual gifts test and I, and I kind of help you discover who you are and how God has created you and help to show you that no matter who you are what you've done what your past is is that God has something for you Right, and can do something through you if you place your faith in him. I believe that. I do. Now, um, this is kind of an interesting transition here, but I, I just didn't know where else to kind of put this. Um, there, there's something in this text that you have to reconcile. James says this. He says, you're justified by your faith and not by works alone. Well, if you've read the Bible before, <laughs> you say, whoa, James, what do you mean by that? In verse 22, because Paul says things like you're saved by grace through faith, not by works so that no man can boast. So who is right and what are they talking about? Well, here's the thing. They're both right. And they're talking about two different things. And I I want us to reconcile these before I conclude here because they are important. Um, I want to tell you this, is that Paul, when he addresses this issue of salvation, he is addressing it from a pre-conversion perspective. In other, in other words, he's saying, before you are saved, here is how you get saved. God does it all. Right? God saves you through Jesus Christ, death on the cross, and he awakens you 
to wanting to follow Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. So you're saved by the grace of God and your faith that you place in God and not by work so that no person can boast. Go ahead and put it up there on the screen, Don, because I didn't mark my script Bible with it. This is, how, this is how Paul puts it. For by grace you have been saved through faith and it is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God not as a result of work so that no person can boast. And so you can't work hard enough to come to know God. You can't do enough to come to know God. But here's the thing, verse 10. Once you come to know God, in other words, for we are his workmanship, in other words, once God brings you to salvation and to saving grace and belief in him, here you go, you are created in Jesus Christ for what? Good works which God has prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And so what Paul is trying to remind people is before you were saved, before you came into relationship with God, you didn't do anything to come to, into, into knowing God or being saved. It wasn't because you were good enough. Right? It was in spite of you being good. It was in spite of your lack of faith. But God gives you faith through the Holy Spirit and the work of Christ on the cross. And he does this so that you'll do good work, so that he'll create you into a new person. And what James says, and who James is writing here to, he's writing to a group of Christians, and that's what he's actually trying to remind them of. It's post-conversion perspective. And why do I believe this? In verse 22, James says this. He says that your faith is completed by your works. In other words, you come to faith, and your faith completes it. It shows it. You can't believe in Christ and remain unchanged, is what James is saying. He ends basically by saying, faith apart from works is dead. And church, this morning, I just want to remind us of that as we are here, and I believe that it's what James wanted to remind us of. I asked you these questions today. What are you committed to right now that is proof that your faith is alive? What would you do right now if you had not more knowledge, but if you had more faith? What are you willing to give up to follow God? And what insecurities are keeping you from doing something for God? I'm going to pray. Um, and then after I pray, we're going to sing a worship song. It's Jesus, I come. If uh, you want to come to the altar and maybe contemplate these questions, or maybe one of these questions stirred something up in you and you want to pray through them, maybe you have a ministry, um, maybe you're doing something for God that you just want to pray over, you want God's blessing in, you want to ask more faith, you want to ask for more faith um, so that you can have more courage in carrying out the very thing that God has called you to do. Whatever that might be, you can do that. You're welcome to come to the altars. You can pray at your seat if you just need to worship and pray for God to increase your faith so that, so that your good works, good and godly works might increase. I encourage you to do that as well. Um, let us all stand. I'm going to pray as the worship team comes forward. Father, this morning, we're reminded that faith without works is dead. And so, Father, right now we pray that you bring us, uh, you give us some life. Father, I believe that your Holy Spirit calls us all to ministry. It may not be full-time ministry. It's not to the pastorate. It's not to be a foreign missionary for a lot of us. But you have, all, you have called us all to simple obedience. You have called us all to obey your word. You have called us all to share our faith. You have called us all to be generous. You have called us, you have called us all to great and wonderful things that you have promised to bless. But Father, they all must be done in faith. Father, I pray that 
we are living proof, proof that our faith is alive. I pray that you awaken dead faith in this room. Father, I pray that we don't beg you for more knowledge or more information, Father, but rather that we are true seekers of transformation. Father, I pray that if there's anything in our lives that we're unwilling to give up to follow you, that we give them to you at this moment. Whatever it is, we let you know right now that it's yours. Father, there are some here today, maybe, that believe that what they've done in the past is too much for you. It can't be redeemed. You can't change them. If they were to obey you, Father, maybe um, people in the church would judge them. Maybe people, their friend group that they had either at work or at school would wonder what happened to them. Father, I pray that if there's anybody in this room that has any insecurities that are holding them back from making a decision to follow you and to obey you, I pray that they give them to you right now. Father, we pray for the work that we're currently doing as a church as we are set in motion to carry out the Great Commission, to tell people about your Son, Jesus Christ, and the Great Commandment to love you and to love other people with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Father, we pray that that you are at the center of all that and we are empowered by your Spirit to do what you would have us to do this morning. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.